You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Amen. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and go to Exodus chapter 14. Again, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and go to Exodus uh, chapter 14. If you are a visitor or a guest here with, you, I, with us, I just want you to know we're very glad you're here, excited that you came to worship with us this morning. We'll be continuing on with our Warrior series today. We'll be continuing on. We've been looking at the idea of fighting the good fight of faith. That what does it mean for us as, as believers to fight the good fight of faith? How do we stand firm against the attacks of the enemy? We'll be getting into that today again in Exodus chapter 14, there's something that I want to, I think, emphasize for us today that we'll be addressing throughout, throughout the sermon. Last week, we talked about the sword of the Spirit, how we should take the sword of the Spirit, how we should use it and fight with it. And, and any, any warrior, any soldier needs to have a, a sense of familiarity with his or her weapon, that, that we should be, be intimately acquainted with the weapons that... We have. So we talked about using it and meditating on the word of God, storing it in our hearts. We talked about preaching the word of God. And if we're going to be faithful to do that, there are some challenges oftentimes that we have to overcome. What do you do when you're looking, when you're trying to meditate on the word of God as we're called to as believers? But the word of God that you are reading and what you're seeing about God is frustrating or discouraging to you. If we're going to actually be students of the word and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, sometimes we're going to go to passages in the Bible that make us uncomfortable. Sometimes we're going to go to passages in the Bible that confuse us because I didn't think that the God that I worship would respond in that way. I believe for far too long, the church, Christians, we dodge passages in the Bible that make us uncomfortable, that make us confused. We dodge good questions that people actually have about the Bible. Christians and those who are considering becoming followers of Jesus have questions, and oftentimes we want to skirt around those questions because they make us uncomfortable. Today in Exodus chapter 14, we're going to see God do some things that for many people they don't agree with, they don't like. Maybe they question, how can God be good and do this and respond in this way? I consider it to be extremely important that we delve into these matters, these questions that we often have. I'm not saying I'll be able to answer all the questions that you have. To be honest with you, I still have questions. There are passages, especially in the Old Testament, where I see the way that God responds to people, and it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me have questions. I don't believe we'll be able to answer all of them. Definitely not today. But I do want to try to give us some directive, some instruction. What do you do when you come across a passage and it seems like God, maybe God's anger, God's wrath is too much? It's too great. How do we handle and deal with passages in the Bible like that one? We'll be getting going in Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse 21. Exodus 14, we'll be starting at verse 21. What we're picking up in the, in the story, in the narrative in, in the book of Exodus 
is that the people of God have already technically been freed from slavery to Egypt. God has sent these, these plagues to the Egyptians. The Egyptians are, are enslaving God's people. God sends these 10 plagues where plague can also be interpreted as some type of calamity, some type of disaster to them. He, he is breaking their will so that they will let go of his people, that they will let his people go. It takes a long period of time. Eventually, after the 10th plague, they say, okay, now you can go. So God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's leading them to the land that he had promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But there's this problem that arises very quickly. The Egyptians changed their mind. The Egyptians are, they're, they're, they're this world power at this time, way, way more military might and military strength than the Israelites have. They're, they're just a group of slaves that just got freed. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he has this full army with chariots and horsemen, and now they're pursuing God's people. And God's people get up to the Red Sea. There's this big body of water, and, and Pharaoh's army is right behind them coming to take them back. And for a small period of time, God allows this this, this cloud of his presence that he was using to lead and guide them to sit in between Israel and the Egyptians, preventing them from being able to reach each other. And then he starts giving this instruction to Moses to save his people. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right and on the left. So God, Moses stretches out his hand, God parts the Red Sea, right? If you grew up in Sunday school, you know this story. There's walls on both sides. So they're literally walking on dry water in the middle of the sea because God is working this miracle and the water is just standing straight up beside them. We'll keep reading verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. All of Pharaoh's army drowned. All of those soldiers. Can God be good and do this? Can God be loving and do this? Is it still a good thing if he's a warrior when he responds in this way and acts in this way towards those who are his enemies and enemies of his people? This is important if we're going to take the sword of the spirit that we 
know how to navigate through these types of questions. It's important if you're going to be a student of the Bible because this isn't the only time that something like this happens. This is one of many occurrences in the Bible. We see it here in Exodus. There are other things similar to this. In Exodus, you see it in Joshua. You see it in Judges. You see it in 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. You see this type of thing happen where God fights against the enemies of his people. How do we navigate this? I want to, again, I want to give us some directives to help us deal with this type of passage, but let me pray for us first, and then we'll get into that. Father, we need your help today and every day. Father, I pray for anyone in the room whose faith becomes discouraged when reading passages like this, stories like this in your word. Father, for those of us who, who, who desire to know you, who want to know you more, but just have difficulties when, when we see your, your, your wrath and your judgment and your anger in the Bible, God, will you help us to see you for who you truly are? Will you help us to be a people that don't dodge difficult passages, painful passages in the Bible, but that we might see your beauty and your glory in every page and in every word in your scriptures? Be with us today and help us to see you for who you are. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. There are many people who, like the Egyptians, hate the God of the Bible, hate Christianity, and will try to quickly bring up things like this in the Bible to discourage your faith. They might say things like, how can you Christians say that you and your God love people when your God would do something like this? How can you say that you that you love that, that your God is actually loving when as Christians, this is one of the most celebrated stories in the Bible. Yet we see God ending the lives of these Egyptians. Aren't you celebrating murder? I have a couple directives that I want to give us to help us when people ask us questions like that or when we ask ourselves questions like that. Directive number one is make sure you know the whole story. Make sure you know the whole story. A lot of people are oversimplifying arguments about the Bible and presenting them like there's some type of authority on it, right? Like, you, we should be wary of anyone who tries to, in, 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 a, in a, a sequence of sentences that's short enough to be in a tweet, try to discredit the Bible that's withstood the test of time for, for centuries at a time, right? We, we, we should question anyone who believes that they can discredit this book, the, the, the most highest selling and highest grossing book that it's ever been created and written in the world. To think that we could, someone could discredit it fully with a tweet, Amen. chances are they're oversimplifying, right? Amen. I want to rewind a bit and let us read some parts earlier in the book of Exodus to make sure we're understanding the whole story. When I say understand the whole story, I mean what comes before it and what comes after it, and how does it fit in the bigger story and bigger narrative of the Bible? Before I do that, let me give you the second directive. Ask yourself how love could have motivated God's actions. Ask yourself how love could have motivated God's actions. Make sure you know the whole story and ask yourself how love could have motivated God's actions. The Bible says that God is love, which is a different statement from saying God is loving, right? It's a different statement from saying God loves. To say that God is love is to say that at the essence of who he is, is love. That, that his, his actions are, are centered around love in some way. So if we do believe in the Bible and ascribe to the truths that are in the Bible, we need to ask ourselves, then how might love be driving this action that I'm seeing from God that makes me uncomfortable? We'll get to answering that question in a little bit. All right, first directive, know the whole story. 
Again, if you grew up in church, you're probably familiar with this story. In Exodus, God appears. He tells Pharaoh, let my people go, right? That's the famous uh, phrase that God uses with Pharaoh. What I didn't know, even though I grew up in Sunday school, was that every time God tells Pharaoh, let my people go, he gives them the reason he's telling, he, he's telling them to let him go. The sentence never stops with let my people go. There's always more that goes on at the end of that sentence. Let me try to prove this. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, here's the reason, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, he's not just saying let them go so they can eat. They were eating where they were. But when God's people, we see this a little bit later in the Bible, when they feast together, it's a form of worship. Some of y'all got excited because I just said eating was worship. Praise the Lord for he is good. There's a feast. <laughs> There's a feast of the Passover. That was good. There's a feast of the Passover. There's this feast of booths where God's people come together around a huge meal. It usually lasts several days, and they're celebrating God's goodness to them, God's provision for them. It's a means of them worshiping God. He's saying, let my people go because I want them to come and be able to celebrate me and who I am. And they currently can't do that where they are. We see more along these same lines. Exodus, chap- Exodus chapter 7, verse 16. Excuse me. And you shall say to him, this is God saying to, talking to Moses, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, talking to Pharaoh, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. That word serve is referring to the way that they would worship God. At this point, they have been serving Pharaoh. He's saying, no, let them go so that now they can serve me because I'm making them my people. There's actually five times in the book of Exodus where he says, let my people go that they may serve me. This is important. I'll try to explain more about why that is so important. Them leaving was always about their ability to worship the one true God, and Pharaoh knew it. You can tell in Exodus chapter 8, verse 25 through 26. We're going to be covering a lot of ground in the scriptures today. Exodus 8, 25 and 26. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. A couple points that you need to know about that verse. This is after the fourth plague, the fourth bit of calamity that God has brought to Egypt. That Pharaoh finally says, okay, you can go worship your God in this land in Egypt. It took four plagues before he even said, yes, you can worship your God right here where you are in Egypt. That's important. Keep that in mind. Verse 26. But Moses said... It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Right? This is what's going on in the midst of the story, in the midst of all these plagues. Moses is saying to them, no, we can't worship our God here. And you know that because what we would do would be an abomination to you because you want people here to worship you. And if they see us worshiping someone else as the one true God, they will stone us and they will harm us. So we have to leave if we're actually going to be able to worship God. This was always about God's people being able to worship him. And Pharaoh knew it. He knew it. It it took him until the fourth plague that God sent to him to even say, yeah, you can worship your God in our land. And Moses was like, no, that's not good enough. We need to be free. 
God wasn't just freeing them from physical oppression. He was freeing them from spiritual oppression as well. It's important to note going forward. All right, again, we need to make sure we know the whole story. So we need to know, now that we've looked at what's happened before Exodus 14, let's make sure we understand what happens after Exodus 14 as well. A very important occurrence happens on what we call Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. We'll start at verse 3. Again, Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. So after they cross the Red Sea, they go to this mountain called Sinai where God begins to make this, this agreement, this covenant with his people. Listen to what he says, verse 3. While Moses went up to God, so he's going up the mountain to talk to the Lord, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus, shall, sorry, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell to the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to what? Myself. Amen. He freed them from Egypt. And he didn't say, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to the wilderness. He said, I came and freed you and brought you to me. He's saying this whole thing was always about me and you having a relationship with each other. He didn't just change their position geographically, but what he's done is he's changed their position with him relationally as well as he has freed them to be able to worship him and him alone. One thing we need to keep in mind, all meaningful relationships have some amount of guidelines and rules associated with them. There are ways of interacting that, that, that a child should not have with their parent, things that a child should not do in, in regards to the way they relate to their parent because they're a child. Same thing maybe with, with brothers and sisters, with good friends, probably easiest to see in romantic relationships. If you enter into this type of relationship, there are ways that you are now to govern yourself because of the nature of the relationship. So God is now going to start laying out for them what it means to actually be his people, to actually be in this type of relationship with him. We see that begin in verse 5. It continues on in what we know to be the law. In verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God says, if you want to be in this relationship with me where I am your God and you are my people, then your part is to obey and keep this agreement that we make. Follow me, follow my commandments, keep my covenant. God says, and I will treasure you above everyone else. Then in the beginning of the next chapter, he begins to tell them the different laws that they have to obey to be able to keep his covenant. And the first law that he gives them is you will have no other gods before me. He's stating the exclusivity of this relationship, that there is something special here. You worship me alone as God. You have no other gods that you worship other than me, and I will treasure you above anyone else. You prioritize me above all other false gods, and I too will treasure you and prioritize you above everyone else. This is the covenant. It's a lot like a marriage, right? It's a lot like a marriage. So there is no one else that I will love and treat the way that I treat you as long as you do the same thing with me. That's the, that's the agreement. This is what we are coming together to do. You don't put anyone above me. You don't love and prioritize anyone above me. Our love is special. It's unique. It's exclusive the way that we love each other. Now, God's not saying he doesn't love everyone else, but he's saying there's something special about the, the love that he has with his people who are in covenant with him. Thus, it makes sense 
that oftentimes in the Bible, God is referred to as the husband and his people are referred to as his bride. Because there's an exclusivity to this relationship. There's a treasuring and a loving that goes on in this relationship that governs the nature of the relationship. His bride is to... and, and. When he starts the, the, the Ten Commandments by saying, you shall have no other gods before me, he's letting them know that the way that the, his people express love to him in this relationship is worship. The way that they, that they share and, and display the love and affection that they have for him is through worshiping him. This is extremely important to understand. This is why the Bible refers to God as being jealous. He's not jealous of us. We have nothing that he desires that he doesn't already have. He's jealous for us the way a husband is jealous for his wife. It wouldn't truly be love if a husband was okay with his wife being flirtatious and being intimate with other men in the same way that she is intimate with him. That wouldn't be true love. You would look at that relationship and say there is something wrong, there is something off about this relationship. So the Bible describes God as jealous. He is jealous for his people. He wants his people's affection. He wants this relationship with his people. And anytime his people worship something other than him, he feels jealousy. Jealousy is an aspect of his love. And that's why he wanted to free them from Egypt. That's why they had to get out of Egypt, because he is jealous for them. He wants them to be in this covenant relationship with him, and they can't do that in Egypt. They can't do that if they're stuck and if they're enslaved physically and spiritually in Egypt, where they have to worship these false gods and have to worship Pharaoh. Then they can't have the type of relationship, the type of love that he wants to have with his people. And this is why. He sends those devastating plagues to Egypt. This is why he parts the Red Sea for his people. Understanding that this was his goal the whole time, this relationship where he is the husband and his people collectively are his bride. Understanding that that was his goal the whole time is an important part of understanding this story. It's extremely important. Now, let's go back to chapter 14 where the Egyptian army dies in the Red Sea, because I want to make sure we notice something in verses 22 and 23. Having seen all that on both ends of the story, I want to make sure we're very clear on something. Pharaoh sent an army after the Israelites. He has messengers. He could have sent messengers. That's not what he did. He sent an army. That's a completely different interaction. If he just wanted to say, hey, come back. We, we thought this thing over. Let's, let's try to work this out in a different way. He could have sent messengers to do that. That's not what he does. When a king, especially at that time, sends all of his army and all of his troops to you, this is declaring war. This is war. This is not let's have a conversation. This is if you resist, you get destroyed. So he sends the army. And then let's look at what he does. Look at verse, verse 22. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So God had just sent these 10 devastating plagues to Egypt to get them to let his people go. They knew this. They knew that it was the God of Israel that was doing this. And then when it looks like Israel's about to be captured, God opens up the Red Sea so his people can go through to get Israel away from Egypt because of his jealous love for them. 
He opens up the Red Sea, giving them a pathway to freedom. And check out what the Egyptian army does in verse 23. And if you don't see the outright foolishness and rebellion and arrogance of what they do here, then we're missing something about the story. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So they saw that this God, who had done all these things to set them free, from slavery in Egypt because he wanted to have this relationship with them. They saw that he blocked them from getting to Egypt, I mean to Israel after he freed them, that he opened up the sea to get them away from Egypt. When they saw that, they said, we're going to get in the sea as well. The thing that we probably should do is walk into the sea where the water is standing up on both sides. This is what they did. Now, if you're God, and you're jealous. Listen, all they had to do was stay on the other side. This is all they had to do. If they will walk into the middle of the Red Sea that God is holding up, nothing will stop them from trying to keep God from having the relationship with his people that he wants to have with them. Amen. Nothing will stop them. If they will follow them into the sea that God is holding open, and they found out just how bent God is on protecting his people. The way a husband would protect his wife if her life was in danger. A couple of years ago, I gave a sermon illustration. I don't remember exactly what the sermon was about, but I talked about how, and I believe many of the husbands in this room would say the same thing, that if, if you come and threaten my family, you come and threaten my wife. Listen, I'm not a fighter, but you're going to have to deal with every bit of strength and every bit of breath and everything I got in me if you are going to try to harm my family. That's just the way the relationship works. That's what love does. See, we understand love oftentimes to be something that's very, that's very tender, that's very kind, that's very nice. Yes, that's true. Also, love is ready. It's ready for the problems that come. So I was, I was talking about that, and I was saying how I... That, that is the posture that I have to take. And, and a, a woman in our congregation came up to me afterwards and said, hey, I, growing up, um, because of my experience, I was sad when I heard you say that because it reminded me of how I never had that. How I never had someone who would protect me and look out for me in that way, and I always wanted that. And the reason that made her sad, because she knows, just like the rest of us know, if we truly think about it, that that means that the people that were supposed to love her actually didn't love her the way that they should. Because when you love in this way, you defend, you protect, and anything that is a threat to the life and the prospering of the people that you love in this way, you deal with it, and you get rid of it. And this is the nature of love. This is the nature of anger. This is the way anger works. You get angry because something you love is, is destroyed, is threatened, or is harmed in some way. When something you love is harmed, you get angry. That is what you feel. That is what love does. Anger is a derivative of love. It comes because you love something. So if someone messes, this is why you can say something about someone you love. We'll say your mom. You can say something about your mom, about something she did wrong. Somebody else said it, now you're angry. Right? You could have just, it could have just came out your mouth. If somebody just agrees with it, now you're angry at them because you love this person. This is the way anger works, and anger is a powerful motivator. It moves us to fight. It moves us to defend, fight for what we love. So hear me on this. 
The thing you defend and fight for is the thing that you love. What you, def- what you are willing to defend and fight for the most is what you love the most. This is why this sister I was referring to was so hurt. God loves his people. He loves the relationship that he has with them. He's ready to bring his anger his aggression against anything that gets in the way of the relationship that he has with his people. He's always been that way. He will always be this way. He's willing to do whatever it takes to protect and defend his people. And if you know the story, Egypt isn't the only kingdom that threatens the people of God being able to worship him and him alone in their own land. If you're familiar with the story of David and Goliath, another Sunday school story. Goliath comes in, defies the God of Israel. He's taunting them. And Goliath also makes this little statement to them where he says, send your best champion out to fight me. Send him out. If I beat him, you become our servants. You can also interpret that word slaves. He says, but if I defeat him, you become our slaves or our servants. But if he defeats me, then we'll become your servants and your slaves. This is what generally happened with military conquest at that time. If you lose, you get enslaved. And if you're enslaved, oftentimes that means you have to worship the God of those who you are enslaved by. So when you see all of this military conquest in the Old Testament and all these battles and all these wars, you got to understand that what God is actually fighting for is the exclusive worship of his people because he is jealous for their love. And he doesn't want them worshiping anyone other than him. And anything that gets in the way of his people worshiping him is a problem, and he deals with it. That's how much he loves his people. you got to understand that our anger is measured out by our love. Anger is measured out by love. The more you love something, the farther you're willing to go to defend it. So the more you see these horrible, these terrifying things that God does as he defends his people, a light bulb should come on and be like, man, it is incredible how much he loves his people. It is incredible how much he loves his people. It's not that he didn't love the Egyptians. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. It's not that he didn't love the Egyptians. It's that they got in the way of the relationship that he has with his people. They got in the way of his people truly being able to be free. And there was nothing, in spite of everything that he did, that would make them stop trying to enslave his people again. I understand that when we see these things, it might still raise questions in our minds might still cause us to wonder about some things and still feel uncomfortable. And I think that's okay. And we might not be able to answer all those questions, but we got to make sure we're answering the most important questions about it. Let me try to explain what I mean. Just listening to, watching this, this video of this pastor. He was talking about biblical manhood and biblical masculinity and about how we, uh, biblical manhood is taking responsibility for your people, taking responsibility and leading courageously. So he was, tra- he was talking about how he trains his sons in being men when they're, when they're in, that, in that transition process. Even he talks to them in middle school, and he said he went up to one of his sons, and he said, all right. He said, there's sometimes when you're going to have to use force to be a man. It just, sometimes it just comes down to it, and you might have to use some force. He said, if you're in the hallway, and you see a girl that has learning disabilities being picked on by a guy, he said, you being a man means you get between him and her. You now are responsible for caring for her and taking care of her in that moment. Even if you don't know either of the two people, he said, that's what you do. You get in the way, you absorb it. Somebody calls your name, you just take it. You're a man, you can handle it. You just take it. He said, and then 
So the son's got questions. But you, what if he keeps going? He said, if he keeps going, here's what I need you to do. He says, you're right-handed, right? He said, yes. Yeah. So that means you put your right foot back. You're going to put your left foot in the front. You're going to put your left foot in the front. And he says, you say to him, if you don't stop, I'm going to stop you. He said his son's eyes got about this big. He's like, what are you, what are you saying? You're going to hit him? He said, I'm saying, when you ball your fist, don't put your thumb inside your fist. Put your thumb outside of your fist. Make sure the hips are at about 30 to 45 degrees because we're coming over the top with a haymaker, he said. We're coming over the top. I want you to aim right here. So the son's like, wait a minute, you want me to start a fight in the middle of school? Like, I, his son has all these questions. Like, we're going to go through the school board. I'm going to get kicked out. He was like, listen. I don't know exactly what's going to happen after that. Somebody else might jump in and fight you. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I can't answer all the questions. He said, I will go to the school board meeting with you, and we will figure that out the best way that we can. He said, but the important question that's answered is now this girl knows that she is worth defending and that she has dignity that will be defended by men in this world. He said, that's the question that we're actually focusing on answering more than anything else. And the reason I tell that story is because we're going to continue to maybe have questions about why God did things the way that he did things. But he answers the most important questions that we have is that he loves, that he is near, that he cares, that he is a defender. And he is going to take care of his people no matter what happens. And he will always defend his people. The question of is he loving is not actually a question we need to wrestle with. We see he is loving. He does care. When we ask God, when we see stories like this in the Old Testament, maybe we ask God, but God, did you have to kill them? Does it take all of that? I want us to understand that the very thing that makes us uncomfortable is the thing that helps us answer the most important questions that we have about him. Is he loving? Does he care? Yes. And the more violent it is, and and thus the more uncomfortable it makes you, the more it should remind you of just how deep his love is because he will defend his people relentlessly no matter what happens and no matter what he has to do. Do you understand God's love towards you to be that way? That he is your defender, that he is willing to fight against anything that will seek to separate you from him. Some of this is extremely shocking. When you know the whole story, it doesn't keep it from being shocking. But part of understanding the whole story is also knowing what happens next as we follow the overall, the bigger picture of the narrative throughout the Bible. Because in the Old Testament, there are entire nations that meet their demise as God is defending his people because of God's jealous love for his people. But in the Gospels, in the New Testament, it is God himself who meets his demise on the cross as he is fighting for the love of his people. That's even more shocking. This is even more shocking that God himself would die, that he would put himself on the cross to take care of the problem that's separating us from him. Because for us, it's not Egypt that's separating us from God. It's our sin. It's the fact that we all rebel against him and our guilt separates us from him. And the sin causes us to desire other things more than him. So he dies on the cross paying the penalty for our sin to take away the guilt that would separate us from him. And he gets up out of the grave with all of his enemies under his feet that he might give us the power that we need to actually follow him and live for him because he will stop at nothing 
to defend his love and his relationship with his people because he is jealous for his people. Even if you go further than the Gospels and you go all the way to the book of Revelation, he destroys sin. He destroys death. He destroys everything. He even destroys the kingdom of darkness, throws Satan himself into the lake of fire because he will always defend his people and he will stop at nothing. Remember that when you read Exodus 14. Remember that when you see God, how, how, how powerful and strong he is and how willing he is to use that to end any threat to his people. It is because of his jealous love. He is jealous for his people. Anything that threatens his relationship with his people is a problem that he is coming to fight. And here's what we got to wrestle with today. Here's what we will always have to wrestle with. That that same energy that he displayed in Exodus chapter 14 when he is fighting against Egypt, is the same energy he's coming into your life with to fight against the sin in your life. He's coming with that same passion, that same aggression to fight against the sin in your life. It's not just that he's defending us and one day he's going to take away sin and take away death. No, he's fighting against it right now in your life. And you got two options because of this. You got two options. You can, one, join him in his fight against your sin or You can pick up your sword and wage war against the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the ancient of days, the jealous one himself. You got two options because he's coming. He's got the battle clothes on and he is coming all in your business, all in your life. And there's things in all of our lives that we like and that we enjoy that we want to continue to hold on to. And he's coming and he's saying no. And he is a warrior. So what do we do? Do we respond to his jealous love with surrender. God, I'm with you. I don't want to fight against you anymore. If this thing you're trying to remove from my life, you're trying to remove from me, okay, go ahead. Do what you got to do. I want to join you in this work. Or do we fight against him? And when he comes into your life with the war clothes on, it can look a variety of different ways. It might look like him through the power of the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin convicting us of something that we know we should be letting go. Maybe we're in denial of it. Maybe we're trying not to think about it, that we know we should let go because it is keeping us from loving him the way that he desires us to do so. He might just come with his spirit just pushing us and compelling us. You need to let this go. You need to surrender this to me. You need to let this go. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes it's like that annoying person in your life group that won't stop talking about this one specific thing in your life that won't stop bringing it up because they care about you, because they are joining in with our God to fight against the sin in your life. He's coming with that same energy, that same fight, that same aggression, because he knows the sin is keeping us from loving him and worshiping him as he calls us to. What will you do when the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, comes to fight against your sin? He is the jealous one. He stops at nothing. He'll never stop. He'll continue to push you. He'll continue to to compel you and challenge you to release, to let go, to surrender the sin that is in your life. And he'll continue to do it until he comes back and ultimately takes it all away. Growing in maturity as a Christian is understanding that when God is working to grow us in holiness, it's because of his love. It's because of his jealous love. It's because of his goodness. The fact that he won't let up on us in these areas is because of how much he cares about us, how much he cares about you. 
in just a few moments here today, we're going to partake in communion. I, only, I want to ask us to do a little bit, consider a couple things before we partake in communion today. Before we partake, I want to ask all of us to just sit for a minute. God, is there anything I'm not surrendering to you right now? Some of you, you already know what it is. You already know. God, is there anything that I'm not surrendering to you right now? I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer of surrender. God, I've been fighting against you. You've been coming. You've been warring against the sin in my life for my good. I've been fighting. I've been pushing back. I've been resisting against you. God, will you help me to surrender? Some of you at a place right now, you're just being honest. You don't feel like you're ready to surrender. You need to be asking God, God, get me ready. Make me ready to surrender. Change my heart. Change my mind. Transform me, God, because I don't want to let go of the things you're calling me to let go of. Or I don't want to walk into and step into the things you are calling me to step into. I want us all to take a minute or two before we approach the table. If you're unfamiliar with what communion is all about, the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and taken away to be crucified, he had this meal with his disciples. He took bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. He also passed around the cup. He said, this is my blood that is shared that is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He was telling them, continue to partake in this meal together to remember me to remember the sacrifice that I have made for you, to remember the fact that I was crucified for you so that you could come and know me. So if you're not a follower of Jesus today, I would ask that you don't partake in communion because this is something that he made very sacred for his people. But if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, even if you're not a member of our church, we would love for you to approach the table with us. I'll pray for us and then I'll open the, the communion table. Father, will you help us to grow and surrender to you Will you help us to grow in realizing, in remembering the fact that when you come, when you push us, when your Holy Spirit is convicting us and challenging us, it is because you love us. It is because you desire to have more and more fellowship and more and more relationship with us. And you got to deal with whatever is getting in the way. Will you help us to feel that love today and every day? We help us to remember that love when we're tempted by the enemy to continue to run to the things that pull us away from you. God, we need the power of your spirit. I'm reminded as we just looked at the Old Testament how your people, even though you showed them this love, they continued to rebel against you. Father, would you grow us into maturity? Mature Christians that understand that sometimes a loving father has to tell us no. That sometimes a loving father has to step in and say, we're not doing this anymore. This is bad for you. This is bad for everyone. Father, will you help us to bear these things in mind? Will you help us to repent even before we approach the table for communion? It's in Christ's name I pray.